Hello, my name is Chris. And my name is Jacob. And you are listening to the Culinary Caucus. The premier podcast at the intersection of food and politics. All right, folks. Um, well, it seems we find ourselves at the end of the road. A long road. A 26-episode long road. Um, the Culinary Caucus will officially be taking a extremely long hiatus um, of nine months because Jacob... My co-host will be leaving us for the great land of Italy. Um, so, Jacob, why don't you just tell the audience uh, what you're going to be doing? So, I've mentioned little bits and pieces of my plan as it's been formulated. But, basically, I will be spending three months at a school in Italy. And I will be working towards getting my uh, professional pastry chef certificate. Uh, and then, after that, I will be... I'll be doing an internship, and I'm not entirely sure where. I think I had mentioned before that it's going to be at the Vatican, but it's still up in the air. Uh, uh. Very well, it could be at the Vatican. Um, I know that's that, that's that's a possibility, but I'm still looking for what the the best place is going to be for me, since the gotcha. Vatican is not necessarily known for their pastry, but it is definitely a recognizable place all the same. So Indeed. we'll we'll see what ends up being the best option for me, and I'll keep Chris updated. And yeah. Definitely let yeah. me know what, what goes on. And, yeah, for um, sure. Well, I uh, just want to say, since this is our last episode, uh, thank you, Jacob, for being such a great co-host. Um, this was kind of a uh, weird sort of brainchild project that um, I'm really grateful that you went along with and uh, were willing to put in the work and dedication to doing. Um, I'm grateful for you including me in it. Yeah. It's yeah. been fun. It has been. has been indeed. All right, um, so for our very last episode, not very last, maybe, hopefully not. Um, last of, for now. For now. <laughs> um, we have a food policy expert, which is amazing, because we are the premier podcast at the intersection of food and poli- politics, <laughs> so we have a food policy person. Um, our good friend who we were uh, a camp, we worked at camp with as camp counselors, Nora McDonald. Give it up, folks. Hey everyone! I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Yeah. We're glad you're Thanks here. Thanks for joining. Alright, so why don't we go in a circle and uh, the first question will be the food that you were most picky of growing up. Okay. Uh, for me, it was a whole range of foods. Uh, pretty much any vegetable that's kind of stereotypically disliked by kids. <laughs> that was me. Just, I mean, you know, Brussels sprouts, spinach, mushrooms, tomatoes, whatever. Mm. But at this point in my life, I can pretty much honestly say there's not a single food that, if made correctly or prepared decently, that I would dislike. I mean, I, I like pretty much all food as long as it's made well. <laughs> as long as that's, there, that's, there's not, that's there's the not key. There's not one single food item that I just dislike regardless of how it's made. Yeah. Are you like uh, Anton from uh, Ratatouille, the food critic, who like is like I'm thin because I don't swallow if it's not good. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm just saying that I'm not gonna say I love all Brussels sprouts. Like I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I can't tell oh, you the last oh, time Brussels I've. Sprouts. I can't tell you the last time I've had a boiled Brussels sprout that I like. Oh, but God. I love roasted Brussels sprouts. Mm. There's a good way and a bad way of preparing everything, and. I just wouldn't discount an entire food item just because I've had bad experiences with it. Yeah. Nora was vigorously nodding her head in agreement since she is also a, a baker and uh, knows a lot about food. 
um, in addition to food policy. Yeah. Roasted vegetables are way to go. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, well, the food I was most picky of, I'm really in the same boat as you. I was picky about, like, everything. Um, and I was, like, a pretty picky eater. My sisters can vouch for that. Um, tomatoes. I mean, now, you know, now I love tomatoes, like, burgers and then, uh, salads and then different things. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, kale was definitely, that, actually, that was, like, the dreaded food. Like, whenever our mom made a nice steaming, like, uh, pile of, of kale, pile of kale with, <laughs> with potatoes in it. And she's like, eat it all. And we are like, oh man, it's going to be a long night. Um, <laughs> going to be at the table working on this for a while. Um, but yeah, uh, and now I, it's tolerable, but I think I'm still, I think there's a picky eater in the back of my mind still. Or possibly you've just not tried kale in a form that's been, that's been appealing. Yeah. Hmm. It's good in smoothies. Oh yeah, I, I I have tried it in smoothies. With the smoothies, it's like with all this fruit and stuff, and so it's like. It's if you put enough in, you can taste it. <laughs> yeah. My experience this morning. Yeah. Oh really? Oh wow. Yeah, I love kale. I almost wore my kale T-shirt tonight, but it was. Oh, you a have a dirty. eat more kale. I do have though. an eat more kale and kale yeah, um, <laughs> and my I have a whole Instagram devoted just to vegetables, and the bio oh. is just kale. Just kale. Oh, wow. So you can look it up, no, folks. Like just the word kale. Oh. Like all caps, of course. Oh, so look up. <laughs> Kale, all caps on Instagram. No, no for the bio. Roasted bio. veggie queen. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the description up. is kale. Okay, roasted veggie queen. Yes. Any No underscores, no spaces. No, nope, just, just roasted veggie queen. All right, look that there up. There you can see that. a picture of me and my kale t-shirt. Awesome. As well as all the roasted vegetables your heart could desire. In case wow. you're not convinced. <laughs> we, should have, we should have added that to your introduction, roasted veggie queen. The queen <laughs> of roasted veggies. All right, uh, well... What about you? What was your picky food? Well, when I was little, I didn't like pizza or vanilla ice cream. Would not eat it, um, which is pretty untraditional yeah. for a kid. So you just you just stuck with the kale? Um, actually, Indian <laughs> and Vietnamese food is what I was raised on. Oh, wow. Um, very odd, I know. Cool. I think the pizza was because I hated tomatoes. I would just, my mom would make chili. I'd pick the tomato, like, little bits of tomatoes out of the chili. It took probably an hour. Um, and then my chili was cold. But then I went to Italy for study abroad and ate a tomato on the first day to force myself to. Fell in love with the tomatoes there. And I will eat a tomato like an apple. Yeah. Wow. That's an amazing transformation. It was. Just 180 degrees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You should definitely lead with that when you write your book. <laughs> I will for a shot. All right. Um, so uh, let's go to the news stories now. And uh, we'll try to speed it up because we have a long agenda. So, uh, Jacob, why don't you go for your news story? Sure. Uh, you may or may not have heard of what's been going on with Apple recently, but basically they um, they have finally admitted to a long-term uh, sort of conspiracy theory that a lot of people have claimed off and on about Apple, and that is that they intentionally reduced the speed of their iPhones. So what the claim has been for many years is that they do that with the intention of trying to get their customers to buy the next iPhone because their current iPhone is just so slow that they can't handle it anymore, um, which sounds pretty sketchy and conniving. But Apple's claim in response to this, and they have already admitted that they do indeed do that, um, their claim is that their intention behind slowing the phones down is as a way of preserving the life of the phones 
so that as the battery decreases in uh, efficiency, the phone will also slow down in order to not put too much strain on it. Um, but still, it's it just seems a little bit sketchy that they would not be upfront about that or that they would not give the customers um, any kind of indication that their battery is losing its life, uh, which would be a seems seems like that would be a very reasonable thing to do, um, so that the customers could then uh, take care of the issue of the battery because batteries are replaceable even in an iPhone, although it takes more technical knowledge to replace an iPhone battery since it doesn't have a removable back. But uh, so basically, yeah, people are have been in uproar over this um, pitchforks. Yes, pitchforks, torches, the yes. whole thing. Uh, and Apple's response to that is they are now offering a discounted rate for batteries for uh, original iPhone users. And by that, I mean users of iPhones that um, were the first owners of their phones and had not bought it secondhand. Um, they, they will offer a $50 off battery. So it, the price is now $30 for a battery if you are the original owner of an iPhone. Hmm. So I guess you could say Apple has made a resolution. They've made a resolution just in time for New Year's to this bad situation. Oh, a New Year's resolution? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's interesting because today I read an article that the number one resolution generally is to become a better person in the next year. So I guess Apple has already Ooh. taken that step to become a better company. Yeah. Um, but the article is just highlighting how people always want to become a better person. And to most people, a good person doesn't lie, cheat, or steal, which are pretty big, easy things to avoid. Maybe not lying. Well, mm -hmm. for some of us. Um, <laughs> but pretty big, easy things to avoid. But it really comes down to much more introspection on your daily, what kind of how you behave, um, mm. and your intentions behind things, and also how you kind of judge other people. Where if you see someone else do something wrong, you judge them for that not knowing anything else about them. But if you do something wrong, you know your intentions and your motives and who you are. So like, oh, that was just, I made a mistake. Um, so you really have to do more self-reflection, understand why you did something. Maybe that really is who you are. So to become a better person, you have to kind of adjust some of those behaviors you might not be thinking about. Hmm. Interesting. Wise words. Wise words in this new year. <laughs> well, speaking about judging um, things and people, um, <laughs> very indirectly that leads Features. right that leads so perfectly into <laughs> my news story uh, which isn't really a news story it's um, a chapter from a recent book I'm reading through called an economic tour of the weird WTF by Peter T Leeson he is a, a law professor at uh, George Mason and um, he basically has written this book that just goes through sort of weird situations weird phenomena throughout history um, like practices that cultures would do and ex he explains it through an, the lens of economics so you see why even though it may seem weird to us it's actually very rational and so in his seventh chapter called Jiminy Cricket's Journey to Hell he basically goes through the medieval practice of um, imprecation where the um, medieval ecclesiastical or the church uh, courts would actually have long very detailed trials against rodents and against um, bugs. So for example, um, let's say you're, you're a farmer, and we'll talk about farmers more later, um, and your crops are getting destroyed by bugs. They would actually uh, do it, uh, put out an imprecation against the bug and um, 
they would basically have a trial. They had lawyers who would say, oh, you try to defend the bug saying, well, it's, you know, it's God's creatures. It has a right to um, eat up all your crops and things like that. And they would say like, well, they would do summons. And if the bugs didn't come to court because they were too small or something like that, then they would delay or like give a certain exemptions or things like that. And it was just a very detailed, um, a, a really detailed process. And the question is why, right? Like, why would you put bugs and rodents on trial? And what Peter T. Leeson, in his own research, um, he comes to the conclusion that the reason the church courts were doing this was because they were using these um, imprecations as a way to support the church's authority at a time when the church's authority was being undermined by groups. Um, and this practice really... Uh, happened most around the 1450 to 1550 in sort of that century between uh, the 15th and 16th centuries um, when it was right before the Reformation and there were groups like the Waldensians and the Vaudois, the Vaudois I believe that's what they're called in France and they're basically sort of like pre-Protestant uh, groups um, that would challenge the church's authority and as a result of these groups that had a really strong foothold um, in certain parts of France um, a lot of people would cease to support the church um, by just not paying tithes and things like that. So this practice of putting bugs and putting mice on trial was a way to say, like, um, you know, the church has authority over nature, and if you have, if you're able to extend the trial for as long, however long you want, then um, and you have to find an optimum length because if you do it too long, then you know farmers realize like, oh, it's um, they're just you know claiming that when the bugs stopped eating our crops, it was as a result of their, um, as a result of their edict. But basically the, the church had to like, um, was using this as sort of a way to say like, oh, we got rid of the bugs. So they're um, trying to gain credibility by exactly sort of claiming that it was their own judgment that allowed the problem to be resolved. Yeah, exactly. And were people convinced by this? Um, so that's an interesting question. I mean, d d over time, they certainly weren't. Um, and, and it really depends on the circumstances, I think. Um, and it really also depends on, like, where where it was done. Like, basically, they didn't do it everywhere. Like, if the church... Um, so he kind of has a map of, like, where a lot of these sort of pre-Protestant groups were. And in those areas, they didn't have any bug trials because basically no one there... Uh, believed in the church's authority, so there was no point in making it. But it was in the places where there was just enough, like, uh, questioning among the population, but still, like, a firm belief in the church, so that people would buy into it. Like, enough people would buy into it, but it was just more of, like, a reminder, as opposed to, like, a way to convince people um, that they were, that they had power. So, it, it's definitely a really interesting um, book, if you all want to check it out. It has some interesting facts. Alright, that was kind of long. Uh, <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> all right. Well, let's quickly go to the food item. Go. All right. So, food item today is a uh, banana cupcake with Nutella frosting. Uh, the I only made like maybe just under a couple dozen cupcakes, and they're pretty small. But all the same, it has two whole bananas in it, so a lot of banana flavor. Um, and throwback to our first episode ever, where I talked about a, another quick bread. Um, and it was zucchini bread. Mm. Uh, just like with the zucchini bread, the bananas, on, in addition to adding sweetness and flavor um, and a little bit of acidity, 
they also actually incorporate a lot more moisture into the the actual cupcake base that carries over through the baking process and just makes for a much more tender and moist cupcake. Uh, and then for the frosting, I was initially thinking I was going to do a cream cheese frosting, but uh, for simplicity's sake and kind of partly for experimentation, I decided to use just a little bit of sour cream. And what that does is um, it uh, adds a little bit of a, just a tang to the flavor, which isn't really all that perceptible when you taste it with all the Nutella and all that. Uh, but it just makes for a more complex taste. And in line with that, I also added a little bit of espresso powder. Again, not a key flavor there, but just creates a little bit more complexity um, on the overall flavor of the dessert. Mm. All right, well, let's dig in. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Jay, why don't you take the biggest one? Yes, sadly. <laughs> All right, on your marks. Get so, well, actually, we should, we should uh, like toast to uh, Jacob's long and illustrious culinary career that will inevitably, inexorably happen. All right. Mm. Mm, so good. Wow, this is oh, banana. Oh, that banana. Yeah, the banana's really good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Do you want to split this one? Do you have a knife? Uh, I do not. Well, there's a pen. Go ahead, take there's a pen there. <laughs> I'm sorry. Mm, I love the Nutella frosting also. Thank you. Yeah. Mm, so, what inspired you to make this, Jacob, as your last food item well, on the Culinary Caucus? Something that I've expressed with past food items is that I kind of like to, to bake um, depending on what is on hand. And you could pass that off as laziness in a way. But I like to think of it as almost a challenge. Sort of like the, the food show Chopped, where you open a basket, and I think that's Chopped, right? Mm -hmm. You open a basket, and you don't know what's mm -hmm. gonna be in there, and you have to, you have to just right. come up with something using those ingredients. Well, I kinda do that at home, so I knew I had Nutella and bananas on hand, and I know that they go well together, so just kinda went from there. Also kind of a little like, you know, you're going to Italy, Nutella's huge in Italy. Yeah. Mm. A little tribute to that. So you'll fit right in once you land. Exactly. The Nutella's better there, too. Oh, <laughs> really? So much better. Hmm. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if that were a result of maybe some of the laws and policies that went into it. <laughs> Would oh, you say so? Possibly. The EU does have a lot of um, laws regarding their food. Hmm. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue that I, I kind of <laughs> an unintended segue, an unintended, a totally unintentional <laughs> segue um, to our guest, Nora McDonald. So you are a food policy expert. What got you interested in food policy? Uh, I wouldn't say expert yet. Maybe in a year and a half when I have a job in food policy. Okay. <laughs> um, I food policy. I've always been interested in nutrition and health mm. and food. Um, probably since I was thirteen is when it really started. Um, and then it was more so from an individual nutrition kind of way until I studied abroad in Florence, Italy, where I took a class Whoa. by my favorite professor ever in my whole life, Peter Fisher, if he's listening. Um, <laughs> and it was just about the history of food in Italy and kind of how its influence on politics and society and culture, and how food is so much more than just something you eat. It's such a tool. Um, and learning about food from the farm to the table to the compost pile and 
just everything that it really encompasses. Um, and I realized that Italy has a much better relationship with food and really Europe than the United States and how we can take some of those ideals, especially from the slow food movement, um, mm -hmm. and kind of bring that back to the United States to reform our own food policy we have here and also just the America's relationship with food, which is a huge reason maybe why we have this so big obesity e epidemic. Mm. So your interest in food has nothing to do with your last name? Nothing to do with my last name, not the restaurant, although I do have stock in McDonald's, um, so I do get a nice check from them every year. So you're part of the machine. I am part of the problem. <laughs> you can't blame her, her last name is her problem. I like to think of the old McDonald had a farm. Yeah. Right. Now I like that. First grade, having that sung to me every day, not as much fun. <laughs> At least you were sung for. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so uh, talk to us a little bit more about, like, so... What are the food policies we need to know? Like, I don't know any food policies. Well, that kind of begs the question, do we have a food policy? Mm. Um, which some would say we don't. Um, when you think of food policy in the context of the American government, I guess, you think of the Farm Bill, which kind of covers food policy, but in terms of agriculture and farming um, and providing subsidies for mostly commodity crops, mm. only, I think, I want to say 1% don't quote me on that stat, um, of subsidies go to specialty crops, which would be your fruits, nuts, and vegetables. Mm. Um, most go to, again, the commodity crops, which would be like wheat, corn, soy, cotton. There's like seven main ones. And a lot of that corn, for example, that's being subsidized in food policy, in quotes, actually is going to things like ethanol, um, mm. which we don't eat. I don't, at least. Um, <laughs> and so sneak ingredient on chop next week um <laughs> so it's not really food at all so that's why one asked do we even have a food policy and if you look at other countries like mexico or brazil brazil in 2014 released this new food policy about improving the country's relationship with food which is actually there's been no um metrics yet to kind of see how it's like nothing's been done yet to see how these new policies have really benefited but people can already see how it's just bringing kind of the culture together and making people healthier anecdotal evidence yeah, yeah. Which is valid evidence. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So you mentioned the Farm Bill earlier. Um, so talk to us about the Farm Bill because I thought it was really interesting. Okay. So the Farm Bill um, is an omnibus bill, which just means there's a lot thrown into it that has nothing to do with farming. Um, a lot of bills are like that these days because it's really the only way to get things passed through Congress. Um, generally, because just cross-aisle talk. But um, it's released, it's reauthorized every five years, the current Farm Bill was authorized September 2014 and is set to expire um, in two months, February 2018. Hmm. Um, hopefully a new farm bill will be done by then to be authorized, but probably not. So this current farm bill will just be extended. Um, and the first farm bill was 1933, under as we know it, there were other mini farm bills before that, hmm. under FDR, just to kind of help farmers through the Dust Bowl and um, Great Depression at the time, because the weather and the dust if you will, um, <laughs> which is causing problems for farmers and they needed to keep their income um, and livelihood up. And so because of that, though, it's kind of set this precedent through farmers throughout history. Um, I forgot what the term is called exactly, but just if everyone else is taken care of, the government needs to take care of farmers, especially as they're feeding the country. Right. Mm. Um, so they should be, you know, kind of subsidizing their in or giving more to their income when, you know, dairy prices aren't high enough to keep their current standard of living. All right. Interesting. So and, well, yeah, sorry, just one more thing. Um, Farm Bill started as just income support, and it has now become so much more. It includes SNAP, which is food stamps, 
um, preserving forest lands, um, insurance. There's 12 titles total. Google it, it'll come right up. <laughs> so every five years it's reauthorized? It's supposed to be, but it's never really. Gotcha. Yes. So it's 28, 2008 was one, and then 2014, so that's like six. Um, but who knows where this next one will come. Yeah. It's kind of like the Hunger Games. I don't know. Like every five years, <laughs> Congress gathers to battle it out over this farm bill <laughs> that will dictate our food policy. In but an arena. In an arena, yeah. Um, it's called only. the Capitol. Yes. Ooh. Oh, wait. Oh, that's Hunger Games, yeah. too. Um, <laughs> oh, this is making me hungry. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. Hopefully not for humans. We, <laughs> no, for <laughs> banana Nutella muffins. All right. Um, so, what was I going to say? I don't even remember what I was going to say. Farmville. Farmville. Uh, right. So you, you got distracted by the cupcakes. What's your agenda here, Nora? Because we all know you're you're part of the machine already. You admitted that much. I am. Um, with with owning McDonald's stock. Um, but like what? But actually, what would you like to see done with food policy? Like, do you? Um, do you have any ideas for what you would like to see? I think first thing with food policy, which wouldn't even really be promoting the true agenda I'd want to see, is just reforming the inconsistencies you see in the farm bill. Um, for example, again, mostly subsidies go to things like sugar and corn. Um, and then at the same time, America has these health goals to reduce obesity and like prevent type 2 diabetes and all these chronic diseases, mm. um, which are killing so many Americans a year. Seven of the 10 top reasons for Americans dying are chronic diseases and or preventable diseases. And isn't obesity a comorbidity with heart disease? Yes, exa yeah, exactly. A hundred thousand, if we could reform, this is kind of going farther into something else I'll say, but quick fact, if we could reform food policy to promote an increased consumption of fruits and vegetables, it would save a hundred thousand lives a year as well as 17 billion dollars, I think. Um, wow. CDC has a lot of interesting information on this, just how we're spending all this money, again, on subsidizing corn and sugar, yet at the same time, those are the things that are making Americans so unhealthy. Mm. So we really just need to realign our farm and agriculture goals with our food and nutrition goals. Um, and maybe focus on the long term, too. Yeah, and focus on the long term. This seems to be so focused on the short term right now. And that's a huge thing, too, with the health care. For every dollar they say you spend now on health, you'll save $6 in the future with public health. So, and that also includes just promoting a healthy diet, um, which would really save a lot of dollars and a lot of other problems the United States has as well. But so that would be the first thing, just these inconsistencies that we see. And the second thing then, um, the House member Earl, I don't know how to say his last name, B, Earl B from Oregon, Portland, Oregon, gotcha. he is promoting his <clears throat> own food policy, um, which is kind of, or his own new farm bill, which is a completely new alternative. He actually had this initiative where he went around Oregon in the country mm. called Sing Your Own Farm Bill, which he asked people what they want, what they would like to see in a farm bill, and then put it to this tune of Handel's Messiah. Um, <laughs> super cool. He's the coolest guy ever, coolest glasses and bow tie. Um, but kind of something along the lines of what he's promoting, where just, again, promoting the healthy consumption of fruits and vegetables and um, giving subsidies and support to beginning and young farmers. Because, again, this isn't food-related, but farm-related. We have a huge problem with farmers in this country, I th want to say two-thirds are 50 or 16 above, and, you know, humans die, and so who's going to then produce our food? Um, sadly, it would probably be factories, which, again, would then make us unhealthier because that would be processed food. So there's hmm. all these little inner workings. Um, well, that that's so interesting because, so I'm going to let the libertarian in me, his name is Jeff, uh, <laughs> jump out. It would seem to me that 
the best way to support those small farmers would not necessarily be to give them direct support in so much as take away the support from the big people mm -hmm. um, because they're crowding the market, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, because they have so much support. And it's much more difficult for small farmers to compete with those big entities that receive all that money. Is that... Completely agree. Oh, um, wow. I wrote a paper where I gave two recommendations for how to reform farm policy. And one was reform the current farm bill, mm -hmm. which would be, um, I guess, reallocating the dollars and helping the small farmers instead, or in addition to the big farmers, because then you don't, there's really, there's less losers in that situation, just more winners. Um, so if you think of the stakeholders. And then the second recommendation was to kind of just reform food policy in the, in the farm bill, right, write a whole new farm bill, um, which would be what you're saying. Um, because what, like, what's the point that the government's just constantly giving money, which is increasing the budget or whatever. We don't have, do we have the resources to do that? Mm -hmm. And I think the problem, the reason that's not happening is because who do you think is, you know, who do you think the largest donator of the Senate Agriculture Committee is? It's these big agribusinesses like Monsanto and like Purdue and Tyson's, um, who are just funding and just donating so much money to the campaigns of these people. So mm -hmm. the government isn't going to write a law that, you know, works against them because then they would lose huge campaign So donations. how do we get around that? Because this all sounds great, but isn't it going to require some people to perform some very selfless acts? Yeah, the um, if the Senate and House committees aren't going to perform those selfless acts, who will? Um, the White House has had tons of initiatives that have kind of tried to promote a healthier um, country. That kind of began with Nixon. That was the first time nutrition and health was ever on the national agenda. He had a White House initiative. With Nixon? With Nixon. It was the first time, 1969, huh. um, which was a huge shift in food policy. You know, the Obamas were both proponents of a healthy diet. But then it also comes down to the consumer. You know, this is a democracy. You, you vote for your president. You also vote right. for what kind of food you want every time. With every dollar bill you spend on food, you're voting. Um, so how do consumers do that? You choose hmm. to buy the healthier food if you know, or the organic vegetables and fruit. Um, but again, I say that coming from, you know, I, that's a luxury I have, that I can afford those foods. Not right. everyone has that luxury, which brings another Although issue. Although nobody needs to drink soda and... Oh, for certain. Like well, okay, let me ask you a question. Um, actually, not so much a question. I want you, <laughs> as much as a demand. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I thought it was really cool, uh, the story you're telling about the farmer in Charlottesville, or outside mm -hmm. of Charlottesville, in, Swoon, Virginia? Swoop, 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 Swoop Virginia. Or, yeah, I don't Swoop think it's Swoopy. Swoop. There's an E on the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so talk about that guy. Yeah, so government regulations um, around food safety have really been revamped in, since 2011 under Food Safety Modernization Act under Obama, um, which is mandatory, but there's also voluntary reasons to kind of promote food safety, which would be through good agricultural practices and good handling practices hmm. um, and third-party audits. And so a lot of times big institutions like the University of Virginia, where I go to school, for example, won't buy from producers and farmers who don't have these certifications because you can't guarantee the food safety as much. And again, these are, it's, you legally have to have, be food, have food safety practices, but these certifications just show they've gone the extra mile. Hmm. So there's this farmer um, about 30 miles, 30 minutes out from Charlottesville named Joel Salatin, internationally known lots of books um mm. and he is so environmentally friendly the way he farms the food is just so much better for you because of its practices um definitely look him up but university of virginia which has a, a pretty large community devoted to promoting small and local farmers and fruits and vegetables and just really helping um people get access to healthy food 
won't like so the students want them to buy from someone like Joel but the university won't because institutions won't buy from people without these certifications and so why does Joel not have them it's because it's very costly um, and time-consuming and Joel is a farmer because he wants to be a farmer not because he wants to sit at his desk all day and get through all this red tape um, mm -hmm. so it's really not helping all these regulations aren't helping these small local producers be able to grow and expand mm -hmm. so it's regulating a lot of them out of business actually and, and I think it's interesting that you point out to the purpose of these regulations, like why they were passed. Originally, you, you mentioned earlier that it was due to the fear of a threat of, like, bioterrorism mm -hmm. and something like that. And, and that's something we've also talked about on this podcast, which is how sometimes laws are passed out of fear of something that may be a threat, but in the scheme of things, a very small threat. Um, and then they have, like, negative consequences. For sure, that. the intent of FISMA was great, or was, you know, very, you know, bioterrorism, prevent that. Yeah, but the unintended that. outcome is regulating all of these small businesses out of business, which is not what you want. Mm. Right. Interesting. Well, <laughs> it's a complex world out there um, in the food policy, and definitely learned some eye-opening things. Um, yeah, I, I look forward to learning more and seeing what you do in the future with this, Nora. Yeah, the um, main thing I learned is that I need to learn more about this. <laughs> exactly. That's I have multiple papers if you'd like to read. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And if you want to see Nora's papers, you can follow her at Queen. No, no, <laughs> roasted no, Veggie Queen. Veggie Queen, no. If you want to learn about roasted vegetables, yeah. that's where you go. All right. Um, well, thank you, Nora, uh, for coming on the show. Really Thanks for having it. me, guys. Yeah. yeah. And uh, if you want to like Third Law on Facebook, uh, follow Third Law Blog on Twitter, follow Third Law Blog on Instagram. Um, the Culinary Caucus is underneath the blog, although really most of our content of that blog has been the Culinary Caucus recently, so I guess you could say it is the blog. Um, they're one and the same. Yeah, they're one and the same. It's almost like a trinity metaphor. Anyways. Um, <laughs> a duality. <laughs> not that. Uh, anyways. <laughs> Alright, well thank you so much for listening, and man, this is the last time we're signing off. So, from all of us here at the Culinary Caucus, until next time, maybe we'll talk in Italy. Have, Have a, a great, great life. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's not over.